This is the Sabbath School lesson for the second quarter, 2021. Lesson 8 for May 15 to 21, Covenant Law, and read by Dr. Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, May 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you that we have your word today. Thank you that we have Jesus as our Saviour. And wherever we're listening to this lesson this week, whether we're in Iran or Iraq or in New Zealand or in Canada or the United States or in Germany uh, or in Kenya or Morocco or Peru or Chile, Lord, we thank you that your word is available for us. And today, as we think of people all around the world who are studying together, we pray that in our personal lives, in our study, in our family lives, and in our ability to witness, that your Holy Spirit will be there to guide us, each one, and that we may know that you are the God who loves and cares for each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Let's read that again. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his commandment of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. One of the important phrases in Psalm 23 indicates where God desires to lead us. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, David declares in verse 3. Because of his own moral uprightness, God will never lead us astray. He will provide safe paths for our spiritual walk through life. What are the safe paths of righteousness? A writer of another psalm answers this question through a prayer request. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Psalm 119 verse 35. And in verse 172, all thy commandments are righteousness. God's law is a safe, firm path through the treacherous swamp of human existence. Our study this week centres on God's law and its place in the Sinai Covenant. Then for the week at a glance, what did Israel's election mean? How does Israel's election parallel our own? How important was the law in the covenant? Does the covenant come unconditionally? Why is obedience such an integral part of the covenant relationship? Sunday, May 16, The Election of Israel And our text for today is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. 
Jewish tradition has taught that God made the covenant with Israel only because other nations rejected it first. Though there is no biblical evidence for that position, it does, however, help bring home the point that for whatever reasons the Lord chose the Hebrew nation, it was not because they were deserving of the high honour and privilege the Lord bestowed upon them. They had no merit of their own that would make them worthy of God's love and his choice of them as his people. They were few in number, a group of enslaved tribes, and politically and militarily weak. Thus, in terms of culture and religion, they were mixed, bland, and without much influence. The basic cause, then, for Israel's election lay in the mystery of God's love and grace. At the same time, however, we need to be careful as we look at this idea of election, because it is fraught with the potential for theological misunderstanding. What did God choose Israel for? Was it to be redeemed, while everyone else was chosen to be rejected and lost? Or were they chosen to be vehicles who would offer the world what they had been offered? How do the following verses help us understand the answers to these questions? First of all, Exodus 19 and verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And Isaiah 56 verse 7. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. As Seventh-day Adventists, we like to view ourselves as the modern-day counterpart of Israel, called by the Lord not to be the only ones redeemed, but to proclaim the message of redemption to the world in the context of the three angels' messages. In short, we believe we have something to say that no one else is saying. This was basically the situation with ancient Israel as well. The purpose of Israel's election was not to turn the Hebrew nation into some exclusive club, hoarding the promise of salvation and redemption for themselves. On the contrary, if we believe that Christ died for all humanity, as we read in Hebrews 2.9, then the redemption the Lord offered Israel was offered to the whole world as well. Israel was supposed to be the vehicle by which this redemption was to be made known. Our church has been called to do the same thing. And so to finish the day, look at your own role in the church. What can you do to help promote the work that we have been called to do? Remember, if you are not actively helping, more than likely you are to some degree standing in the way.
Monday, May 17. Ties that bind. Our text for today is Deuteronomy 4.13. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. However much we have been stressing that the covenant is always a covenant of grace, that it is only the result of God's bestowing unmerited favour upon those who enter into a saving relationship with Him, grace is not a licence to disobey. On the contrary, covenant and law belong together. They are, in fact, inseparable. Look at the text we've just quoted in Deuteronomy 4.13. How tightly does it link the covenant and the law? How does it show how basic the law is to the covenant? And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. When you think about what a covenant is, the concept of law as an integral part makes sense. If we understand the covenant as, among other things, a relationship, then some sort of rules and boundaries need to be drawn. How long would a marriage or a friendship or a business partnership last if there were no boundaries or rules, either specifically expressed or tacitly understood? The husband decides to take a girlfriend, or the friend decides to help himself to the other's wallet, or one business partner without telling the other invites another person to join their venture, these acts would be a violation of rules, laws and principles. How long would these relationships last under such lawless circumstances? That is why there have to be boundaries, lines drawn and rules established. Only through these can the relationship be maintained. In fact, Various expressions such as law in Psalm 78.10, statutes in Psalm 50 verse 16, testimonies in Psalm 25.10, commandments in Psalm 103 verse 18, and word of the Lord in Deuteronomy 33.9 are found parallel to or in closest association with, if not having almost the same meaning as, the word covenant. Evidently, the words of this covenant in Jeremiah 11, 3, 6 and 8 are the words of God's law, statutes, testimonies and commandments. Let's just look at those texts. First of all, Psalm 78 verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. Psalm 50 and verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or make my covenant in your mouth? And Psalm 25 verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And Psalm 103 verse 18, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments, to do them. And Jeremiah 11, verse 3, And say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. And verse 6, 
Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. And verse 8, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. The covenant of God with his people Israel contained various requirements that would be crucial for maintaining the special relationship he sought with his people. Is it any different today? To finish today, think of someone you have a close relationship with. Now, imagine what would happen to that relationship if you didn't feel bound by any rules, norms or laws, but believed you had total freedom to do whatever you wanted. Even if you say that you love this person, and that love alone will decide how you relate to him or her, why is there still a need for rules? Be prepared to discuss this. Tuesday, May 18, Law Within the Covenant. Our text for today is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. What are your first thoughts when you think of law? Police officers, traffic tickets, judges and jail? Or do you think of restrictions, rules, authoritarian parents and punishment? Or perhaps do you think of order, harmony, stability? Or maybe even love? The Hebrew word Torah, translated as law in our Bibles, means teaching or instruction. The term can be used to refer to all God's instructions, whether moral, civil, social or religious. It implies all the wise counsels God has graciously given his people, so they may experience an abundant life both physically and spiritually. No wonder the psalmist could call the man blessed whose, as it says in Psalm 1-2, delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. As we read the law, or Torah, the instructions and teachings recorded in the book of Moses that became a part of Israel's covenant, we are impressed with the wide range of instruction. The law touches upon every part of Israel's lifestyle, agriculture, civil government, social relationships and worship. Why do you suppose God provided so much instruction for Israel? Well, let's have a look at uh, Deuteronomy 10 verse 13 again. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your own good. In what ways were these instructions for their good? 
The work of the law within the covenant was to provide guidelines to the new life of the human covenant partner. The law introduces the member of the covenant to the will of God, whom one comes to know in the fullest sense through obedience by faith to his commandments and other expressions of his will. The part played by the law within the living reality of the covenant relationship shows that Israel could not follow the ways of other nations. They could not live by natural law, human needs, desires or even social, political and economic necessities alone. They could continue as God's holy nation, priestly kingdom and special treasure only through uncompromising obedience to the revealed will of the covenant-making God in all areas of life. And so to finish today, like ancient Israel, Seventh-day Adventists have received a wide range of counsels pertaining to every phase of Christian living through a modern manifestation of the prophetic gift. Why should we view these counsels as a gift from God rather than a detriment to independent thought and action? At the same time, what dangers do we face of turning that gift into something legalistic as the Israelites did with their gifts? And we're going to finish with Romans 9.32. Why? Because they did not seek it in faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Wednesday, May 19. The Stability of God's Law what truth about God does the presence of God's law in the covenant relationship teach us about his essential nature? Well, let's look at Malachi 3 verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And James 1 verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's law is an oral or written expression of his will, as we read in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Because it is a transcript of his character, its presence in the covenant assures us of the permanence and dependability of God. Although we may not always be able to discern the outworkings of his providence, we know he is trustworthy. His universe is under unvarying moral and physical laws. It is this fact that gives us true freedom and security. And Walter R. Beach, writing in Dimensions in Salvation, page 143, published by Review and Herald Publishing Association in 1963, writes, The assurance that God is reliable and dependable lies in the truth that He is a God of law. His will and His law are one. God says that right is right because it describes the best possible relationships. Therefore, God's law is never arbitrary or subject to whim or fancy. 
it is the most stable thing in the universe. End of quote. If God's law cannot save a person from sin, why did he make it a part of the covenant? Well, let's have a look at Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? A relationship requires agreement and harmony, because God is not only the creator of the world, but also its moral governor, law is essential for the happiness of his created intelligent beings to live in harmony with him. His law, the expression of his will, is thus the constitution of his government. It is naturally the norm or obligation of the covenant arrangement and relationship. Its purpose is not to save, but to define our duty to God. Commandments 1 to 4, and our duty to our fellow human beings, Commandments 5 to 10. In other words, it sets forth the manner of life that God designs for His covenant children to live, for their own happiness and well-being. It prevented Israel from substituting some other philosophy as a way of life. It was and is the purpose of the covenant relationship to bring the believer through God's transforming grace into harmony with his will and character. And so to finish today, look around. Can you not see the devastating effects of lawlessness? Even in your own life, can you not see some damage done by breaking God's law? In what ways do these realities help to affirm the goodness of God's law and why law should be a crucial part of our relationship with Him? Thursday, May 20. If. Look up the following verses. What is the one point they have in common, and what does it teach about the nature of the covenant? Genesis 18, verse 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all the lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And Leviticus 26 and verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. God openly acknowledges Abraham's faithful obedience to my commandments, my statutes, and my laws in Genesis 26 verse 5. It is implied that God expects such a lifestyle from his human partner in the covenant. The full statement of the biblical covenant at Sinai 
makes it abundantly evident that conditions of obedience are one of the basic aspects of the covenant. Exodus 19 verse 5 makes it clear, if you will obey. The conditional aspect of the covenant is undeniable. Though bestowed by grace, though unearned, though a gift to them, the covenant promises were not unconditional. The people could reject the gift, deny the grace, and turn away from the promises. The covenant, as with salvation, never negates free will. The Lord does not force people into a saving relationship with Him. He doesn't impose a covenant upon them. He freely offers it to everyone. Everyone is invited to accept it. When a person does accept it, obligations follow, not as a means of earning the covenant blessing, but as an outward manifestation of having received the covenant blessings. Israel should obey, not in order to earn the promises, but so that the promises could be fulfilled in her. Her obedience was an expression of what it is like to be blessed by the Lord. Obedience does not earn the blessings in that God is obligated to bring them. Obedience instead creates an environment in which the blessing of faith can be made manifest. And so to finish today, Deuteronomy 5.33 reads, Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. Is the Lord saying here to Israel that if they obey, they will earn these blessings? That these blessings are what the people are owed? Or is he saying, if you obey, these blessings can result because obedience opens the way for me to be able to bring the blessings upon you. What is the difference between the two ideas? Friday, May 21. How does Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, help us better understand 1. the place and meaning of God's law within his covenant, and 2. the concept that covenant is synonymous with relationship? Matthew 22, beginning at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
On page 484 of volume 5 of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary we read, There must first be love in the heart before a person can, in the strength and by the grace of Christ, begin to observe the precepts of the law, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And continuing, Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. But where love is present, a person will automatically set out to order his life in harmony with the will of God as expressed in his commandments. End of quote. And then from the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 505, we read, In the precepts of his holy law, God has given a perfect rule of life. And he has declared that until the close of time, this law, unchanged in a single jot or tittle, is to maintain its claim upon human beings. Christ came to magnify the law and make it honourable. He showed that it is based upon the broad foundation of love to God and love to man, and that obedience to its precepts comprises the whole duty of man. In his own life, he gave an example of obedience to the law of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he showed how its requirements extend beyond the outward acts and take cognizance of the thoughts and intents of the heart. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Why does the thread of love exert a stronger pull than the rope of fear to draw human beings to God? 2. Why is the command in Matthew 22.34 to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind the first and greatest commandment? And 3. Simone Wheel once wrote that order is the first need of all. How do you understand her words in the context of the week's study particularly in relation to the idea of law. And to summarise this week's lesson, God's law was an integral part of the covenant, yet it was a true covenant of grace. Grace, however, never nullifies the need for law. On the contrary, law is a means by which grace is manifested and expressed in the lives of those who receive grace. Inside Story Our story today is titled Unexplainable Hospital Visit by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission and once again it contains Dr. Hernando Diaz. In Medellin, Colombia, Hernando Diaz stepped out of the hospital to rest. He had spent the past two hours with his son Samuel as the boy's blood was cleaned by a dialysis machine with an artificial kidney. 
His wife, Erica, was now sitting with the boy for the last two hours of hemodialysis. Hernando collapsed onto a bench near a water fountain and he turned on a sermon on his cell phone. Moments later, a stranger walked up and asked whether he could sit on the bench. Hernando nodded, listening to the sermon over the cell phone speaker. The stranger's own cell phone rang. I've decided to kill myself, the stranger angrily told the caller. I haven't been able to find work for two years and I don't want to live. Don't call me. As he spoke, he seemed to forget Hernando on the bench. But when he hung up, he came back to reality. The sermon caught his attention. Is that a Christian preacher? he asked. Yes, he is, Hernando said. I heard that you want to take your life. Yes, that is what I want to do, the man said. I cannot bear it any more. I don't think that it is a coincidence that you sat with me, Hernando said. You need help. Would you like help? Yes, I would like help. What do you do? I'm an accountant and I have a family that I can't support. If someone told you I can help you and supply your needs and give you hope for a better future, would you accept it? Of course. Hernando spoke about Jesus and the man gave his heart to Jesus on the spot. Hernando encouraged him to send out his resume with faith. The next day, Hernando sat on the same bench and saw the man looking for him. Guess what? The man said. Someone called with a job offer. I feel great. Hernando praised God and curiously asked whom he had visited at the hospital the previous day. The man said he didn't know anyone in the hospital. Yesterday I felt an irresistible urge to come to the hospital, he said. I sat next to you because I didn't know what to do. Hernando, a Seventh-day Adventist physician at the Adventist Medical Centre on the campus of Columbia Adventist University in Medellin, has many similar stories. During the past five years, more than 100 people have changed their minds about committing suicide after praying with him. They now are living normal lives, he said. This quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help open a missionary training centre at Columbia Adventist University. This lesson was read by Dr Percy Harold for Christian Services for the Blind. It's supported by the Sabbath School Department and Hope Channel Australia and is rebroadcast by Christian Record Services and through podcasts at It Is Written in the United States, Hope Channel Germany and through Apple iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, God is always faithful.